here. Really, it's, uh, it's so much fun. I think we're going to look, look forward with great fondness to the time we had in the parking lot. Um, it's crazy, it's weird, it's wild. I'm expecting this thing to go any moment in time. And, uh, but, but there's something powerful about a community's journey and finding those moments that make it unique. Little obstacles, hurdles, challenges, uniquenesses, curiosities. And uh, thank you for being part of this great story. It's great to have my son over there. Just wave to him. Up from San Diego. And uh, we have him for a few days, which is super wonderful. And I threatened him with life and limb if he went home and slept this afternoon. So he stumbled in here, for which I am super, super grateful. Thanks also for those of you who are new. This is your first Sunday or second. And uh, we just really are enjoying this little community story of ours. So grab your Bibles if you have them or your weapon of mass destruction that you spent 14 hours a, a, a day on over the last week and open up to Mark's Gospel. Now those of you who are a little less acquainted with the Scriptures will, know that, will not know that there are four Jesus biographies in the Scriptures. This book is really a library of 66 books of which one of them is a 16 chapter staccato passage around the Jesus story, probably written by a young guy called John Mark, probably recorded after Peter's sermons, Simon Peter, the, the great disciple, apostle. And um, we have been working our way through it. It's taken way too long because of the pandemic. We kind of hiccuped here and there a little bit. But we have followed the idea that it parallels the first exodus. This is the second exodus. And there's a whole lot of parallels between the Exodus book and Mark's account. We are coming into land. Last Sunday we tried, it was actually quite funny, Meryl and I got breakfast yesterday morning and went and picnicked above Newport and I opened up that red chair and there were my notes from last week, just this frumpled up mess. No one could make any sense of it and I did have a smile to myself. We tried last week to attack this passage, Mark chapter 14, 72 verses, 70 jolly two verses. How on earth do you make sense out of 72 verses in a 30-minute window? Well, we're going to have a go. I'm going to read a passage from the 14th chapter, and then we'll take it from there. If you uh, turn to verse 32, I'm reading from the NIV. So they went to a place called Gethsemane. Who's they? It's Jesus and it's James, Peter, James and John. And Gethsemane means the oil press. It means where oil is pressed and of course the symbolism is rich. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. One translation says, my soul is swallowed up by sorrow to the point of death. And he said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed. If it's possible, at that hour might pass from him. So, Abba Father, he said, Daddy, in other words, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. That's a big verse tonight. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, 
He, Jesus said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you might not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Of course they didn't. He came and kind of shook them on the shoulder. And returning a third time, he said to them, Are you still asleep and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Let the Son of Man be delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes the betrayer. Now, when I started reading those 72 verses, I thought, how on earth am I going to handle this passage? There are about six stories in this whole passage, and um, they seem to be disconnected. They don't seem to flow easily and naturally together. I was reminded of a story, a novel which I read at college by Chinua Achebe called Things Fall Apart. Chinua Achebe is a Nigerian. He wrote it in 1958. That wasn't when I went to college. That was when I was born. Thank you, Ben, for uh, acknowledging my sense of humor. And um, how many of you read Chinua Achebe's? Okay, okay. So essentially, the chief protagonist is a man called Nkongkwe. And uh, he, the book starts out with him defeating the local wrestling champion who had been undefeated. And it's a high moment in the village because he is now viewed as a hero. He, he and I'm, 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 I'm kind of sweeping through the story. He then gets three wives. He has 10 children. He's a very successful farmer. And because he is such a hero in the village, what happens is the village fathers come to him and ask him to adopt a kid from another village. Well, the story behind that was that village had killed one of their women. And the way they did justice in cultural context was that that village then had to give this village one of their youngsters. And so uh, Nkongkwe was given this kid. I mean, this is the, the ultimate. The, the tribe trusts him. He is a wrestler. He is a warrior. He is a farmer. He has three wives. He has ten kids. And now he, he is a man of standing in the community. And it sounds as if the novel were to end there, it would be a Cinderella-esque story, a happy live, live ever, uh, happily ever after kind of thing. But things begin to fall apart. What happens is that they're out on a celebration and they're letting off their weapons, their rifles, and a piece comes from his rifle, hits one of the other kids in the village and kills them. What he has to do then is go into seven years of exile, which he does. During the seven years of exile, the missionaries come to the village and they establish a church, they bring us British colonialism and the British judicial system. And by the time he comes back from exile, the village is not the same place anymore. They rebel, he gets arrested, he kills one of the, um, the British colonial stewards, messengers, and he ends up dying. Now, I'm not going to tell you all the details of that, but from the high point of, would you look after this young man, to him dying, things fall apart. When we look at this passage, it's almost a mirror image. It starts off, as we said last Sunday, with this woman who floods Jesus with her worship by taking a year's worth of fragrance. So let's say you earn five grand a month, which is some of your dreams, I know. 
Uh, multiply that by 12, even my math tells me that's 60 grand. 60 grand's worth of isimiyaki, and you pour it over a dirty carpenter. Pause for a moment to think of the cultural impact of that moment. But it's the high point. Jesus has just walked into Jerusalem. They've sung their songs. They've declared their praise. This is the ultimate moment. And some whispers in the dark begin to express the unsettled nature of people offended because Jesus is worshipped. And they legitimize it, if you wish, by saying, hey, listen, why wasn't that money given to the poor? Surely that's a good thing to do. And Jesus looks at them and declares a number of things in one sentence. He said, the poor you will always have with me. Worshipping Jesus, bowing a knee before Jesus, is a higher value and moral virtue than looking after the poor, which is such a cultural offense even today. What is the church doing, people say? Why don't you look after the poor? Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Yes, it is. But our primary virtue, our primary morality is to offer our praise to the ultimate one in whom our soul is captivated. The story continues to slide as the whispers in the dark places now begin to become more open. Jesus has a meal with his mates. He knows what's going down. They don't. They're having wine, they're having food, they're breaking bread. It's a great old moment. They, I mean, forgive me for just being honest here. It said that they sang a hymn. I mean, I think after a couple of glasses of wine, you're happy to sing about anything. And here they sing the song. It's a high moment. The three disciples can't handle their drink. They keep falling asleep when they should be praying. But you see what's happening. Things are beginning to unravel. Don't you love the honesty of the text? The whispers of darkness suddenly become the whispers in the corners where Judas now goes and he says, listen, dude, I can get him for you. How much? And his soul is offered at a mere 30 coins. My soul is but worth 30 shekels, if you wish. And one has to ask the question, what is your and my soul worth? Where do I bow a knee to another idol, another God, to another something that draws my worship and affection? How much is my soul worth? And Jesus says, the one who eats after me. In other words, he is kind of thinking himself just like me. And then he says to Peter, you're going to deny me. And of course, we know Peter's outburst. Things fall apart and then the time which is our text which I'll come back to in a moment Judas betrays him with a kiss they arrest him in the dark of the night John probably runs naked from it because he was wrapped in a sheet being in the middle of the night the sheep gets with him Jesus is isolated and abandoned and then the whole false accusation piece. Things fall apart. Now what do I do with this text? How do we manage this? How, how can we make sense of it in the time that remains? I want to zone in just for a moment the cultural moment of loneliness. 
To me, there are two expressions of loneliness. I'll briefly refer to the one and then the other. The first is purely the social loneliness that exists on steroids in our world today. I was watching something, a TED talk by uh, a, a Swedish woman, Karen Dolva, co-founder of No Isolation. She described how she wrestled with, with loneliness to the point of suicide. No Christian essence to the story other than she realized if she was feeling that, others were feeling that too. And she decides to start this No Isolation um, foundation. But listen to this quote I took from her. Loneliness is a greater killer through heart disease than obesity. Loneliness will kill you more readily than obesity will. Isn't that a startling statistic from her? But the two expressions are psychosocial and spiritual. Signa Health. I'll just give this to you. I found it particularly interesting. The first is just here. This level of loneliness here. They said loneliness is the inability to connect with others in a meaningful and intimate way. Loneliness is the inability to connect with people in a meaningful and intimate way. Can I ask you, because I have to rush, uh, time is never a friend when we preach. But, but can I ask you to sit up for a moment? If you know that to be true about you, Please don't let it run away from you. A meaningful and intimate way. If you hold people at arm's length, it is tragedy and it's contrary to the Imago Day. The way God authored us is to connect in with people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaks of the, th the theology of sociality. In other words, we were created for community. We were meant to define our identity, our meaning, and our sense of calling in community, not by ourselves. And there is such a temptation, and forgive my impassioned fatherly heart, but th there is such a temptation when things go hard to step back and step back and step back and intentionally disengage in any meaningful, intimate way with other people. My dear, dear friend, it will kill you. Chris, but it hurts too badly. Yes, it does. 43 years we've been together. Do you want to know how often I've hurt her? Fortunately, in the last 39 years, not so much. Uh, well, three years, not so much. See, anything that's worth that social identity and collaboration and the, 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 um, the meaning that comes out of that is worth fighting for. Number two, she says, or they say, no close best friends, just casual acquaintances. No overwhelming, th sorry, uh, thirdly, an overwhelming sense of isolation. I'm not connected anywhere, they argue. Fourthly, a negative feelings of self-doubt and self-worth. I think the whole hookup culture has come through this. Make me feel human. Have sex with my body. Sleep with me. I will feel, if not for a brief moment, I will feel human. For a brief moment, the sensual pleasures that makes me Imago Day, the image of God, at least it feels alive just a tad. And I'm prepared to sacrifice a journey of humanness for a moment of humanness. Can you still hear me? Can you still hear me? See, I know how cool it is that I can shout legitimately. 
Because normally when I'm preaching, it's like tone it down, chill out, Christian Orange County. But, but now I can shout. I'm, I'm supposed to shout. I'm, I'm supposed to. Uh, fifthly, reach out but not reciprocate. In other words, I'm not seen and heard. These are all, this is a, a, a health website where we reach out and it's not reciprocated, it's not seen and heard. And fifthly, exhaustion or burnout from trying to engage socially. However, bearing in mind what I said just a moment ago, and I'm sorry to have rushed through those five, six things quickly. Understand that we are created for community. Can I appeal to you? I know we all have that where we just want to distance ourselves. But it is a super, super dangerous reality. It's not the way God has crafted us. You're not going to discover personal sense of identity, meaning, and calling alone. Please understand that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing his letters from prison when he was awaiting execution by the Gestapo, wrote these words. Separated from all others, his young fiancée was almost 20 years younger than him. Desperately wanting to marry her, he had kept himself pure for that one girl whom he met just as the war broke out. And he began to sense, the letters tell us, that he was going to be executed. Can you imagine the trauma of this? I think he was about 38 and she was about 22 or something. Can you imagine what he must have felt like his whole life? He'd been waiting for her. Now he has her, but he can't have her. And he writes these impassioned letters from prison to help us understand our true sense of identity, meaning, and calling is found in the us-ness, not in the I-ness. And I said there are two ways we experience loneliness. One is the psychosocial, which I've just touched on ever so briefly. The other is in the spiritual. Now, this is what I want to uh, us to understand in this passage. I think there is a God loneliness that He walks us through. I think there is a moment and a movement, an act, if you wish, of loneliness that God guarantees for every one of our stories. It is when God wants to separate us from the hustle and bustle and the noise and the energy that carries us in our humanness so that He, the ultimate true lover of our soul, can access us. That's what we've just read. That's what Jesus goes through. It's a very, very sacred time. I've been through that probably three times in my spiritual walk. Probably. Three times where I remember when I was just saved, I was 18 years old, college student, and I remember the burdened reality of a God-authored loneliness. Because I'm a social animal, I'm an extrovert, I'm an optimist, I love being around people. God had to separate me because the voices of those around me was just too loud. And I'll never forget the night. We used to preach on the streets, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night. And I remember the Friday night we met at a coffee shop, which was our custom. Then we'd go on the streets and preach. And then we'd come back and have coffee together. And I remember walking in that Friday night up some stairs. It used to be a nightclub before. And I walked up the stairs and I stood there. And honestly, no one in the room was really like me. I was a college kid from, a, from the suburbs, had done pretty well at school, and, and almost everyone in the room was an ex-addict, 
broken relationships, didn't have family. I mean, the list, the list just went on. And I felt so completely out of place. And that sense of disconnectedness, I just walked down to my car, started up, our university was up at the top of the hill in the city, and I drove up to the university where all the rugby players hung out, I knew where we were, and I went and had some beers with them, and I felt the Spirit of God speak to me with such kindness to say, son, do you really want to run to this? And I thought, no, I don't. But what was down there in the coffee shop was too hard to bear. And I felt the Spirit of God say to me, it won't be the last time you feel this. What did the Father do with Jesus? Well, we know that there were the whispers in darkness. We know that He was speaking, that while everyone else was speaking, that sense of Jesus knew they were beginning to whisper about Him. That sense of being isolated, when they all abandoned Him and they came to arrest him. Probably one of the most difficult parts of being a Christian is that sense of isolation where those you've run with before start disconnecting from you. And again, we will all go through that. Distressed, or one translation said we grieve. What am I talking about? I'm talking about a sacred moment in our story of loneliness where God separates us. We could be in a crowd, but apart from the crowd because God's getting at us. Because what He wants to do is deep inside of us. Jesus takes the crowd with Him. He goes and has a meal with His mates and they drink and they have a great old feast together. And then He takes three more guys and God says, I don't know if God's saying this to Jesus, but almost like, dude, this is me and you, the Father and the Son. We've got to do this as the other three slept. Where are you? I'm sure He would have said. Aren't you praying for me? Don't you feel my pain? Don't you feel my travail? Don't you feel my grief? Am I I facing this by myself? I thought we were buddies. As they gently snored their glass of wine away. And the father said, but son, this is between you and me. There is a sacred movement of loneliness we will all go through. He speaks about being troubled, an unsettled heart. It's burning inside of him, day and night, topsy-turvy. The betrayal, the sense of abandonment. And the denial. Stop with me for a moment, if you will, and think about Moses. Isn't that what Moses went through? He ran away and God said, come, I'll put you in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years Moses was in the desert. 40 years he looked after someone else's sheep. 40 jolly years. One day, the bush burned. God said, your loneliness is over. And Moses didn't rage. He didn't say, yeah, this is it. I can't do this. I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. Think about Joseph. His brothers sell him into slavery. Nothing makes sense. His family abandons him. Can you imagine, just for a moment, put names, your names in there. Who, who, who are those who are that close to you who would sell you into slavery? And that was dastardly, friends. 
As a history lover, I'm always researching to find out more of what life was like then. And to be a slave was the ultimate destruction of your humanness. Most of them had to live naked. They were sold naked. People would come and prod them and see if their muscles were like, if they were strong, if their back was good. They were abused sexually. I mean, the whole thing is just way beyond our Western sensibilities in any shape or form. And one day, Father God rang the bell and the brothers came home. What is yours and mine? What is that moment when we have to die? Because dying is essential to new life. I was saying to Merrill in the walk today, one of, my one of the stories that most deeply affects me even today, all these years later, is the story of Hosea. I'm coming into land. I literally am coming into land. We'll try. We'll try. This is the high point of my message. Come on here. <laughs> All right, let me let me try do something. Just just think for a moment. Just give me 5 minutes. Just think for a moment. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Is that all right? Sorry. Just think for a moment. Just think for a moment. And it can flip either way, either gender, gender wise. God comes to a man who by all accounts is a virgin. And he says to the man, I need you to marry Goma. Now, the communities were small those days. It isn't like today, you know, an LA with 25 million people or something. These are small cities of 20,000 people, 30,000 people. And, and God says to him, what I want you to do is I want you to marry Goma, Hosea, but I want you to know two things about her. Number one, she's a whore. She's a, a prostitute. She sells her body for money. And I want you to marry her. And when you marry her, she's going to have multiple affairs and even your kids are not going to be your own. Are you okay with that? Now, any one of us who would be brutally honest would have a real problem with that, wouldn't we? Say, God, really? Really? I mean, marrying a woman who has been promiscuous is one thing, or a man, is one thing. But it's another thing to know that once you marry, she will drift into the night. The pitter-patter of her feet through the city and the town will be heard by all who are out and about. And ultimately, he would have to go and buy her back. He would have to go to the slave markets where men can no longer use or abuse her because such is the death of her humanness and her womanness. He has to go and buy her back on the slave markets. Are you okay with that, Hosea? Now, you see, ladies and gentlemen, there are many moving parts to this. 
Because I think God offends our dream. I think God offends the things that, oh, one day I will. The punchline in this passage, not my will, but yours be done. That's the punchline. And that's where all of us will get to one, two, three or four times in our spiritual journey. Not my will, but yours be done. And you will be like Jonah, a brutally pained human being if you say no. If you create an alternative to the Jesus story, you will live a life of deep pain. Think for a moment as I land of Jonah. Now, was he in an actual belly of a whale? I think one can argue yes. But, but let's say it's metaphorical. Let's say you aren't persuaded. Okay, I, I, I get that. But what is the deal? In the deepest, darkest recesses, whatever that is, true, literally or metaphorically, Jonah had to get to exactly the same place. Not my will, but yours be done. Things fall apart. And our faith has its greatest substance when we learn to die. Our faith has its greatest strength when we learn to die. Our faith has its greatest resolve when we learn to die. Not my will, but yours be done. The psychosocial loneliness is a story we combat in community. But the spiritual loneliness we will all go through. Surrounding ourselves by friends and activities will not take that deep sense of sacred loneliness away. It will remain because it's God-authored and it's there to do a deep work in us in order to do a deep work through us. I close with this verse. Thank you so much for being so kind, especially our friendly neighbors here. Psalm 23, one verse. We know the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. We know He makes me lie down in green pastures. We know He leads me besides quiet waters. We love these. He refreshes my soul. He guides me through the right paths for His name's sake. Here it comes. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Why have I taken this angle today? Well, well I think the Bible points to it. But as someone who has walked with the Lord for four decades... I have been here. Everything inside of me has freaked out against God. Everything inside of me has said, no Lord, this cannot be true. This cannot be what you ask of me. This is way too hard. And sadly, it took me way too long to get to the Jesus place of, okay, not my will, but yours be done. Meryl and I did not want to live in America. This was not our great destination live in Orange County. We wanted to plant a church in Hong Kong. We wanted to work the Pacific Rim. Asia, China, 1.2 billion people. India, 1.2 billion people. Thailand, Cambodia, uh, Japan. We wanted to be there. We called our families in and said, this is where we're going. We are moving to Asia. 
And then God said, no, you're not. You're moving to America. And I said, no, I'm not. Yeah, in John Wayne Airport. We were jet lagged. We just landed 1995. We just landed from South Africa. Waiting for a friend to pick us up in Monarch Beach. They live down there. And I was walking up and down. Dana and her sister were eight and ten, no, seven and nine years old. And the Spirit of God said to me, welcome home. And my heart sank. I said, no, I do not want to live in America. We arrived at Bruce and Lena's house, took the luggage through and plonked her down in the bedroom. And I said, babe, we're moving to America. And she sat down on the bed and said, no, we're not. We're going to Asia. And I said, yes, we are. This is what God has said to us. Am I grateful today? I am so grateful that God's plans are far superior to anything I could have authored. Did we have to die? Absolutely. To the grief of saying goodbye to family in South Africa that we love deeply. To friends, a church like this, except a thousand of them. Of twenty-somethings. Not my will, but yours be done. Though he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me as I learn to die. Would you pray with me, please? I could not thank you more readily for such a remarkable group of people as I do right now. I look around, literally around, and I'm delighted. I'm amazed. I'm awed by those you've drawn together in this Genesis community. Young and old, rich and poor, different nations and ethnicities. I'm also grateful, Lord, that in dying to ourselves, your unfolding sacred story for our lives is far superior to anything we could ever craft or create. But it does require the sacred movement of loneliness which gives birth to death and then life. Things fall apart and at a surface level they do but inside the work of the Spirit is new life. Tyler's just going to play and sing over us. Would you take a moment? Thank you, you've been very kind this afternoon. Would you take a moment to just allow the Spirit of God to translate this message into something that's meaningful to you, whether it's this cultural moment or the spiritual movement. Let God the Holy Spirit speak to you.